humans are kind of like clay where we're just molded by each person we meet and each experience we have. So trying to increase the velocity of that, because otherwise your day could just be going to the same job, you know, for 20 plus years. And to me, like, that's the scary part is if it's just kind of a rinse and repeat. In this episode, I'm joined by Mike Rabb. Mike is the director of The Garage in San Francisco, a co-working space that provides community and resources for Northwestern alumni, operators, and investors. Previously, Mike was an investor at Sinai Ventures, where he invested in early-stage consumer tech companies and has a wealth of experience as a freelance writer with articles commissioned for Business Insider, One Zero, and Hacker Noon. In this conversation, we discuss authenticity, being helpful to founders, and what makes for a fulfilling career. Hope you enjoy. to kick things off with a bit about your transition from college to the working world. So after graduating from Northwestern, you decide to take a job with Fox and move out to Los Angeles. Can you walk me through your decision to start your career working in the entertainment industry? Yeah, of course. So I was actually um, a film major at Northwestern University, and I grew up outside of Chicago. So I kind of knew since high school that I wanted to work in the entertainment industry and specifically kind of on the business side of things. I took a couple internships in the summers in Los Angeles, so I had spent time out there. But basically, everyone I talked to said, if you want to get an entry-level role in the entertainment industry, you have to be out there. You have to have graduated and actually be living there. Long story short, I ended up moving out there after graduation and spent about three months just taking every coffee meeting I could get, kind of informal chats, sending my resume to everyone, and actually ended up getting uh, the role at Fox just from having uh, a friend who sent me a job posting and said, this sounds perfect for you. Um, so they sent in my resume for me. So it was somewhat of a kind of warm intro. That's awesome. So I guess for our listeners, you spend roughly four years at Fox, at which point you do something a little more surprising. Can you tell our listeners why you decided to take a break from your job and what you decided to do next? Yeah. So after about four years, you know, I had been promoted, but I felt like I was plateauing in how much I was learning which was frustrating. And, you know, I, I loved everyone who I worked with. I was kind of in a job I wouldn't have imagined having, you know, five years ago, but I didn't really see a path forward that was fulfilling for myself. Mm-hmm. And so my first thought was I should go to business school. So, you know, I studied for the tests and applied to the kind of top five business schools, didn't get into any of them. So that kind of compounded the frustration of like feeling stuck and not feeling like I had a path elsewhere. And so I ended up uh, leaving my job and backpacking through Europe for, for about three and a half, four months, which was incredibly terrifying to think about, like stepping off of the quote unquote corporate ladder, uh, because I could have stayed you know, in my role and continued to be promoted. And that was like the easy path, but I decided to do something a, a little more unconventional, at least at the time. I was reading a couple of your blog entries from this time period, and I saw you wrote, My biggest fear at the moment is that I played safe and let fear guide my decisions. After considering the nearly boundless options that I have, I've chosen to follow the path that scares me the most, which is leaving my job to travel for a few months, which I think is awesome. So obviously there is this negative connotation um, associated with, you know, having a gap on our resume, but I'm curious in more of a positive sense, looking back on that experience, how did it maybe change your worldview or your perspective on life or careers? Yeah. I mean, it fundamentally 
changed my perspective on many things. First of all, like what brings you happiness and joy? And we live in a world, or at least back then, I felt like where everything was about accomplishment and especially being amplified by social media, Facebook, Instagram. And I kind of learned that even when you reach something that even a few years ago that you really desired and, you know, aimed for, it wasn't as fulfilling as I expected it to be, unless I had kind of people around me um, to experience and share that with. So prioritizing people and relationships in your life, I learned that doing the quote unquote scary thing or something unconventional was very rewarding. I could still be in the first job in the first company that, that I worked at. That would have been the safe path, in which case there are so many people that I would not have met. There are so many experiences that I wouldn't have had. And to me, those are all valuable things. So it's about kind of diversifying the things you experience, because I think humans are kind of like clay where we're just molded by each person we meet and each experience we have. So trying to increase the velocity of that, because otherwise your day could just be going to the same job, you know, for 20 plus years. And to me, that that's the scary part is if it's just kind of a rinse and repeat. And I like that a lot. And especially in that transition from college to adult life, it is so easy to get caught in that day to day of you know, this is my daily routine. I'm going to go to the same two to three places. I'm going to talk to the same group of people. So I think it's awesome that you had the courage to kind of differ from that path and be willing to take that risk. Um, yeah, it's, there's a great, I'm not sure if you're familiar with David Foster Wallace. This is water. Like you have to be cognizant of, of the minutia of everyday life as well. Yeah, that is one of my all-time favorite speeches, but really an awesome, awesome message in, in many ways. So very lucky for those kids at Kenyon. So totally. after some time away, you come back to Los Angeles uh, and you actually rejoined Fox as a member of their digital consumer group. What was that adjustment like returning to a daily routine after a few months of complete autonomy over your time? Yeah, it was interesting. So I got back. Obviously, I needed a job. I needed to make money again. And I, I thought I wanted to work more in kind of like tech and startups, that type of ecosystem. I applied to a bunch of different startups in Los Angeles where I was living, talked to people again, was having a bunch of informationals and coffee meetings and that type of stuff, and just couldn't really get any traction there. And then I saw this new group, which had just formed within the kind of big entity of 21st Century Fox, and saw there was an opening kind of at my level, raised my hand, kind of submitted my resume, and then reached out to my old boss who said he would put in a good word. So things moved pretty quickly there. But like you mentioned, it was an adjustment to go into an office and sit there for, you know, eight, nine hours a day after, you know, my previous life for a few months was, oh, where do I want to go eat? What do I want to go check out? Like every moment of time was mine to decide exactly what I wanted to do, which was both fun, but also like that can be um, overwhelming and stressful. So somewhat of a return to structure was actually a positive thing. But through all of that, I think I had greater perspective and appreciation for having a steady job and seeing the same people every day and kind of like the stability of it, knowing what else was out in the world. Because previously, you know, I would sit at my desk and think like, what else is out there? And now it's like, okay, well now I kind of know, I feel like I have crossed that off the list at least for a little while. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So after almost a year in your new role with Fox, you make the move from Los Angeles to San Francisco to join Sinai Ventures. Can you tell our listeners what that was like transitioning from the entertainment industry into the world of venture capital? Uh, and the story of how you initially got linked up with co-founders of Sinai, Jordan Fudge and Eric Reiner. Yeah, so I actually knew Jordan and Eric uh, at Northwestern. They were uh, a year or two younger than me. And Jordan actually worked with me at Fox right after he graduated from school. 
So we knew each other well. But as far as transitioning from the entertainment industry into venture capital, I noticed that a lot of stuff about the venture capital uh, kind of ecosystem was very similar to the entertainment industry. You make a lot of investments or a lot of bets and only the hits pay off. They make dozens of TV shows every year. And one of those pays off for all of the others that fail. And this is kind of in the old model, pre kind of SVOD, Netflix, all that type of stuff. You, your hits pay for your losses. It's the same in venture capital. There's a lot of kind of fear of missing out, FOMO and copycats. So if one company or one show does well, everyone kind of copies it and tries to come up with the next version of it. Venture capitalists and television development executives are very publicly confident, even though their kind of intuition is wrong most of the time. They kind of act like they know exactly what's going to work, but they're wrong more than they're right, which is interesting because I think most people, if they were wrong more than they were right in their daily jobs, would probably be fired. And at the end of the day, like it's, it's the talent in both industries that actually kind of keeps it moving. So whether it's the entrepreneurs or the writers and showrunners who actually create the thing and the good, you can think of the VCs or the studios as kind of just the money behind it all. So I'm personally curious about this. I do think there's definitely some overlap in entertainment and VC, particularly in the sense that VCs are many times tasked with helping founders to really refine and hone their pitch. I'm curious if any aspects of your experience working for Fox and just trying to think through the arc of a good story helped you to then help founders tell their story with their startups. Yeah, I think most people in the world, you know, founders or, or anyone else, undervalue storytelling. It is such a basic and instinctual skill. And, and I think the most important parts of that are understanding the other person's perspective. So it's really about empathy, understanding, you know, this specific investor, what are they looking for? What do they want to hear based on their history, what they have publicly written? And, and I'm not saying that to you know, BS them. I'm saying that to understand like what your story should entail and, and the points that you want to hit and how what you're working on and your background affects what they're looking for. And, and I think that's with anything. It's just knowing your audience is the most important part of storytelling and, and knowing their background and what they want to hear. Yeah. And I would think doing that legwork beforehand is good, whether or not you're trying to tell a good story or do anything else, you know, simply understanding where the other person is coming from and what they need and are looking for. Uh, I think Absolutely. it's beneficial in, in many ways. So I guess bringing us to present day here, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your work at The Garage in San Francisco and what got you so excited about it in the first place? Sure. So it's a super interesting and kind of weird role. So I work with now my alma mater, Northwestern University, which is based in Evanston, Illinois. I'm full-time in San Francisco as an extension of, of what's called The Garage back on campus which is a resource, a physical place, a community for student entrepreneurs. And so I work kind of more specifically with alums out in the San Francisco Bay Area to help them build their companies and their startups and build a community around other Northwestern alums who can be helpful. So what was most exciting to me about it, two of my frustrations of working in, in venture were, one, that it felt like a hamster wheel where you're always just looking for the next deal and the next deal, the next deal. And I miss the aspect of building something, having a goal, finding ways to achieve the next level of what you're building. And it was also just demoralizing to, on a daily basis, have to turn down smart, intelligent, hardworking founders uh, who come to you with their visions for building the future, um, which you have to do to 99.9% .9 of founders. So what appealed to me was this role was completely new. Uh, I was kind of building something from scratch. It's, it's a little bit of an experiment. 
and my job is to help everyone. So there's no more, you're great, you're smart, I like you, but like we can't invest. Um, it's let's figure out a way to help you. It sounds really exciting. And I think it's great that if something in venture capital that you disliked was maybe the, I guess, transactional and frustrating nature of constantly looking for the next thing versus this role now where you're able to build these long-term relationships and really just help everyone you can. Um, I think that's great. So like after, I guess, two and a half years at both Sinai and now the garage combined, what do you feel are the biggest things that founders need help with? And how can we as a community do a better job of serving them? You know, having worked at a venture firm before, I actually sent out a survey to a bunch of our portfolio companies about like, how could we as a venture firm be more helpful? And if you drill down into the actual ways, almost all of them were introductions to other people. So whether that's for hiring, right? Like recruiting, companies are always looking for smart people. I think that's kind of difficult from a venture perspective because uh, if you have a portfolio of companies and you have a really smart engineer who's looking for a job, like there's a conflict of interest in where you send them. But I think there's so much focus on what you can measure. So the daily metrics and KPIs, and there's less focus on actually being a good manager. And I think that's the most important thing for actual CEOs, especially as you grow into a role, is figuring out how to set culture, how to manage people. There was some study, and I, I don't know exactly what it was, so check the veracity of this, but I can definitely tell you it's true from my own personal experience that the highest correlation uh, between someone who's a good manager is if they have had a bad manager in the past. So basically, if you've experienced someone who's not a good manager, you know, okay, I don't want to do this to the people that I manage now. So I think whether that's executive coaching, book recommendations, because if, if you end up creating a workspace that people enjoy and want to come to every day, despite, you know, the potential for becoming wealthy or working on something they enjoy, that's just a good culture. That's very important. And I also think if you can teach the person to be kind of authentic and genuine, like that's part of being a good manager, it's, you know, transparency, authenticity, make sure everyone understands why decisions are being made. I think it's important if you are going to be hiring people and paying people to help build your rocket ship or your company, you need to think about them a lot. Yeah. And I think we're starting to see kind of a common thread through this, just in the sense of authenticity. Ali Rogani, the former CEO of Twitter, has this really excellent lecture on leadership where he says there's no single archetype of a great leader, but all of them excel in being uniquely themselves. They're authentic in who they are. And they engender trust in those around them, you know, their customers, their employees. So I think this idea that great leaders can be many different ways and many different types of people, but they all excel in, you know, being authentic and engendering trust is, is something interesting. Um, and I think like us as humans, we just have a great radar. So like we can just tell if someone isn't being completely authentic, whether it's conscious or subconscious you feel like you want to distance or not trust that person. So I feel like that's what actually gives you power to get buy-in from your customers or from your employees or from anyone else in the world is just like, oh, this person is definitely just being themselves. Oh, 100%. So kind of in this vein of authenticity, Mike, um, switching gears to more of a philosophical question here, but reflecting on your 20s, what do you believe is worth your time or makes for a fulfilling career? Yeah, I think at any time in your life, the most important thing, at least for me, is the people in it. So making sure that you're investing in relationships, not only the ones you currently have, but finding ways to connect with other people. I think most of human happiness, you know, kind of boils down to relationships and people. I think we're actually starting to experience this in San Francisco and New York and other places that are being locked down due to this virus. Without human connection, there's just kind of less joy in life. I think it's important when you're young, when you're in your 20s, 
to try different careers if you're not ecstatic and kind of killing it at your first job and love it and want to keep going with it. If you're able to try something else, do it. I feel like I've had three careers so far. I worked in strategy in the entertainment world, in early stage venture capital, and now you could qualify what I do as a kind of community organizing for a nonprofit. And so each of those experiences has, first of all, taught me a lot about very different things, but it's also allowed me to experiment with what aspects I like about different jobs, about different managers, how I want to spend my time, what I'm good at, because I think it's hard to be happy at a job if you're not good at it. You know, you can have a dream job that you think about and you study for, but until you actually do it on a daily basis, you don't know if you'll enjoy it or if you're good at it. So I think it's important to experience a lot of different things, especially when you're younger and you have that flexibility. As far as what makes a fulfilling career, again, it's the people you work with, if you're skilled at it, if you're engaged and kind of intellectually stimulated by it, but also uh, if you find meaning in it. And I think, you know, when you talk about a fulfilling career, it's all about what does this all mean in the grander scheme of things? Uh, am I contributing to like the greater of the human good? And you can define that or qualify that however you want. And again, this is kind of a luxury that not everyone who has a job has, right? Like some people just need to pay the bills and we'll do what you can. But if you're able to find something that you think adds value to the human experience, I think that's fulfilling. That's great. I think there's a lot of wisdom in there. So just the last question here that Ethan and I like to ask all our guests on the show, what are some of your favorite books or podcasts and how have they changed the way that you view the world? Sure. I think the first one, it's called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I read this when I was, I think I was 24 and it really changed my perspective about how to work with people, you know, whether that is in a work setting or just in life. And so much about it is, again, understanding the other person's perspective. So I would recommend that book. One of my other favorites is called Originals by Adam Grant. And one of the takeaways from that was basically, for me at least, the best artists and kind of creative people in the world. It's about the volume and the quantity of content that ends up turning out the best. So you don't work your whole life to have some magnum opus that like this one piece was perfect. You put out a bunch of work and a bunch of things and most of it doesn't get any attention or isn't viewed as successful but that's how you get to the one piece or the, you know, the project that actually is. So just being fearless and putting stuff out into the world, uh, I think is important. How to win friends and influence people is, you know, obviously a classic, but I'll have to check out originals by Adam Grant. Lastly, where can our, uh, where can our listeners find you? Probably best place is um, just Twitter at hi there. I'm Mike. And then from there, I think you can find my website and blog, which is the rabbit hole but spelled as in my last name, R-A-A-B instead of rabbit hole. Great. We will link to those in the show notes. Uh, and a quick plug cool. for Mike's blog. Some really good posts in there. I think guys and girls will really like reading that. Mike, thanks so much for, uh, for coming on the show. Thanks, Ashley. I appreciate you having me. This has been Ashley Tyson with Worth. You can find show notes below or at worth.carb.co. That's card with two R's. Thanks for your time.